A United Airlines 747 is doing a flight from Hawaii to New Zealand on its way to Australia when a big bang is heard. What caused this flight to turn around and make an emergency landing in Hawaii? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. And welcome to our two-year anniversary episode. Woo! We don't have anything super special. No. Though this particular incident might remind you of some stuff we've covered before, recently. And much like... AKA potentially last week. <laughs> <laughs> and much like our very first episode, we're talking about the same airline. Oh. I didn't even think about that. Good job drawing parallels. Okay. Well, happy two years. Yay. Yeah. It's weird. That being said, if you'd like to give us a gift, you could leave, <laughs> you could leave a, a review. That is true. If that you enjoy true. the show. I thought you meant like send a gift to no, our P.O. box. We do have like, a P.O. box. We do have a P.O. box. If you want the information for that, it's on the website under the contact information. But please do not feel that you need to send us anything. Ever. What's our P.O. box? I don't even freaking know. I don't know. remember. Since I don't think we've said it on the episode in a really long time, where is it on the contact? Our P.O. box is P.O. box 461977 Aurora, Colorado 80046. There you go. We almost so. never check it. <laughs> Normally, because no one sends it. It's more so if anything gets sent back to us. Like, if we send patron stuff and it gets sent back for whatever reason. Then at least it would get delivered. There. Then at least we would have it. But please feel that you do not need to send us anything. That is not my intention. But please give us a review. <laughs> yeah, a review would be great. Or even a subscribe. On you. whatever you're using to listen. Yep. It helps other people see us. So then we get more listeners. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, spooky stories for this month, again, because well, we just like spooky stories. I like the spooks. Spooky stories. Also, do this early. If you have any ideas for November's listener episodes, let us know. You'll get a shout out in that episode. David, you don't have to. Don't feel like you're pressured. but David gets enough shout outs. He does. If you've never listened to a listener episode. You need to do it. You need to do it at least once so you understand who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly, David's pretty much the star of our aviation stories at this point. <laughs> he sends in the most stuff. But people love him. I think yeah. it's great. It, his stories are great. Everyone's like, I, this isn't going to compare to anything David writes. Yeah, <laughs> like, I was like, you lived a life, David. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. It may not seem like a full life to you, but it seems like a full life to us youngins. So. Seems crazy enough to me. <laughs> Also, check out the newsletter. You can subscribe to that on the website. It's on the main homepage. It tells you what we covered last month, what we're covering this month, and potential guests and Patreon exclusives and all that kind of stuff. Things so like that. If you want to do that, that information, again, on the website. And check out Patreon. As always, we always ask that you do that. Uh, see all the extra content you get. You also get free merch from us. And you get exclu exclusive merch discounts. Unless yes. you're a, a $2 level Which person. Which most people don't seem to use. Yeah. Please use that. Please, please use do. That. If you have it, please use it. Yeah, please. It's the whole please. point of you being a patron. <laughs> one of them. Well, yeah. one of them, yes. But some stuff is pretty expensive. All right. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering United Airlines Flight 811. Thank you to... Helen and Rich. For recommending this episode. This happened on February 24th of 1989. Miranda, keep that date in mind. Mostly 1989? The, mostly the year. 1989. Got it. It's in my brain. Okay. This was a Boeing 747-100 with the tail number November 4713 uniform. So these 747s were aging at the time already. They were already getting pretty old. The 747-100s were the original 747s, and they made the 747-200 variant pretty quickly. It was a lot more popular. It was a little more efficient, a little bit longer range, but very similar. So the 747-100 is not very common, but United was a launch customer for the 747, so they had most of the 747-100s, and they were aging at the time in 1989. This was a flight from, are you ready? Oh boy. Los Angeles International Airport. To Honolulu, to Auckland in New Zealand, to Sydney in Australia. Got it. Those of you who didn't see that, I mapped it out with my finger. 
<laughs> you mean everyone who's not us? <laughs> yes. Eventually we'll have video, but not not now. We will be talking about the Honolulu to Auckland segment. Got the it. longer one. The longer one. I mean, how long could it be? It's long. It's like I feel... nine and some hours. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> my brain, like, I feel like mapped out in my brain that Hawaii to New Zealand is not that far, but... It's not nowhere near as far as most of the United States, no. Yeah, but... It's in the right direction, but... I can't look it up because there are no direct flights now. Not currently. Nope. Flight time from Honolulu to Auckland is nine hours and ten minutes. I was close. That was really good. See, I know my maps. <laughs> I'm good at this kind of thing. The captain for today's flight was David Cronin. He was 59 years old. He had 28,000 total hours. Holy oh my god. Crap. He was an experienced captain. Is that? No, we've had a 29, right? I think so. I'd have to look back through the notes, but something like that. Yeah. Uh, this is second? It's up there. I don't know. He's up there. <laughs> Uh, of those 28,000 hours, only 1,600 of them were on the 747. Only 1,600? That's a pretty good amount of hours on the 747 anyway. This was also, fun fact, this was supposed to be his last flight before his mandatory retirement from the airlines. Oh. oh. That's ominous. Yeah. That sucks. I'm only assuming it sucks because I don't actually know what happened. You don't know what happened. But yet. I'm assuming that it sucks. <laughs> I mean, it's not well, great. Well, what? We'll talk about it. The first officer for today's flight was Gregory Slater. He was 48 years old, and he had 14,500 hours total. I did not find any hours for the 747. The flight engineer was Ronald Thomas, and he was 46 years old, and he also had 20,000 hours. So he was also Jesus. a very long-time flight engineer. Also, don't know how much of that was on the 747. I can assume quite a lot of it. The flight from LAX to Honolulu took place without issue. A flight crew change then occurred at Honolulu to this accident crew. The crew arrived at the United Airlines Operations Office at Honolulu one hour and 15 minutes before the scheduled departure. They had a 34-hour rest period layover at Honolulu before that. That doesn't suck. That does not suck. I would just, love a 34-hour yeah. rest period. Just, we're going to send you to Honolulu, and then you get to spend 34 hours. Take your time. Rest. Relax. Enjoy. Go to a beach. Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nick and I were talking to a 777 captain once who was like, yeah, I like doing the Honolulu ones because then it's overnight in Honolulu, and I usually get a beachfront Airbnb. I'm like, look yeah. at you. The flight left from gate 10 at Honolulu at 1.33 a.m., Honolulu time. Three minutes late because of an issue for the cabin crew arming the 5L door. That was their stated reason. Didn't elaborate on that. Didn't seem to matter. The flight had three flight crew, 15 cabin crew, and 337 passengers. The captain was the pilot flying for this flight, and the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. At 1.52 a.m. and 49 seconds, the flight was cleared for takeoff from Honolulu, runway 8 right. The auxiliary power unit was used during takeoff, but was shut down shortly after takeoff. They Wait, some, what do you mean by that? The auxiliary power unit's just used to provide extra electrical power, and when you're in a critical stage of flight, if for some reason you had an engine failure, you don't also want to lose electronics or anything like that. So sometimes they run, leave the APU running just to make sure that nothing goes wrong. Is that still a common practice today? It depends. Not every airline does it. It's not required. But some do. Okay. Okay. Yes, it makes sense. Yeah. Simultaneous to the APU shutdown, the power was reduced to climb thrust. Normal. There were thunderstorms in the area that the crew could see visually out of the window, as well as on their onboard radar. They requested clearance from the air traffic controller to deviate to the left of their initial planned course to go around the storms. The air traffic controller granted this clearance. The passenger seatbelt sign was left on just in case of turbulence from the weather. As the airplane was climbing between 22,000 feet and 23,000 feet, moving at 300 knots, the flight crew heard a loud thump, and the airplane shook. Immediately after this, the airplane experienced a tremendous explosion, quote-unquote. Immediately apparent was that there had been a rapid decompression. The flight crew donned their oxygen masks. The cabin horn sounded, meaning that there was a pressure differential from the cabin to the outside air, and that it had changed. And the flight crew believed that the passenger oxygen masks had deployed because it is an automatic system. Wait, does that mean that they didn't? <laughs> You're looking at me like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut I up. I have shut no up. idea. I... I believe they actually did. Did they? The way you said that made it seem ominous. Like That's the way they didn't. wrote it into the report. 
Hmm. I have no idea. They didn't say. I actually. haven't read any. But I actually assume they did. We'll talk about it. Okay. Okay. That was really ominous. <laughs> yes, it is. And that's actually the way that it was literally written in the report. Yeah, so to be fair, it sounds like they believe that. And I was like, does yes. that mean it didn't happen? Like, right. <laughs> that's also a that's problem just, if it didn't happen. That's just what the crew believed. believed. The captain then initiated an emergency descent and made a 180 degree turn to the left to turn back toward Honolulu while avoiding the thunderstorms. The first officer informed the air traffic controller that the airplane was performing an emergency descent and that they appeared to have lost power in the number three engine. The flight crew then entered the correct 7700 emergency code into their transponder. So there is a universal set of emergency codes that you can put into the transponder, which is... Called a squawk. Called a squawk. And that's how they're identified on the radar for air traffic controllers. This squawk code pops up and it gives them... It basically gives them an idea of what the airplane is doing at that I've given time. seen Mayday depict it as when you enter that squawk, you become red on the radar. It does. Anything okay. with 7-7 seven, seven at the beginning of it is considered an emergency. The last two digits vary in code based on what the emergency, the emergency is. is. And that'll pop up red on their radar screen in modern day to tell them, hey, this is a priority airplane. They got a problem. Cool. I didn't know if that was accurate. Yep. It's it also is. a good idea. Because it is. then it's you're like, idea. colors. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. At 2.20 a.m., they declared an emergency to the air traffic controller. The flight crew then shut down the number three engine due to a heavy vibration and bad indications. <laughs> yeah, the airplane was just yeah. shaking like crazy. The flight engineer then left the flight deck to inspect the cabin. When he returned, he reported to the captain that there was a large portion of the forward right side missing from the fuselage. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> This reminds me of Aloha. The cargo door and passenger cabin wall directly above the cargo door on the first passenger deck was missing, along with several rows of seats that had had passengers. Oh, <laughs> oh no. The number four engine then began having poor indications as well, as well as flashes of fire. So the captain opted to shut that engine down as well. Oh, the I'm not going <laughs> to say because you're going to be mad at me, but it makes me really sad. They what? Did they get sucked into the engines? No. Well, they know that at least one passenger did not. Mm -hmm. So I, I started watching the Mayday episode around my portion. I did not watch the narration of the crash and all that. But the parents of one of the passengers were on the episode for a lot of reasons. And they said that they would have preferred if their son had gone through the engine because then he would have been dead and had it done with rather than falling for four minutes, possibly alive. Yeah, that's not great. Ugh. So... I was just thinking, like, based on what we went over last week, like, having stuff fly back, yes. especially since the engines are back there, mm -hmm. like, I, it would make me very sad if people went through the engines. This is some real Aloha vibes. Uh, right? Can we talk about it? Like, except, yeah. <laughs> no anyway. thanks. Can you imagine that flight engineer's like, go check out what's happening. Okay. And he walks out and he's like, got it. <laughs> he goes back and he's like. We got a problem. So, part of the right side of the plane's gone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyways, so all that's very morbid and, yes, sad to think about. It's rough. Anyways, so they had opted to shut down the number four engine as well because of the bad indications that it was giving. The flight crew then began dumping fuel to reduce weight for their landing. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight to approach to Honolulu runway 8 left. The final approach was flown at 190 to 200 knots, Oof. so pretty fast, with only the left two engines running, of course. The flight crew began extending the flaps, but as they extended to 5 degrees, an indication of asymmetry showed in the cockpit. So in other words, the flaps were not extending... On the other wing. On, yeah, one side or the other, they were not extending properly. The crew opted to extend the flaps to 10 degrees, and the trailing edge flaps did so... But the right outboard leading edge flaps did not extend. A.K.A. the slats. Yeah, the slats. They they still called them up flaps on the 747 because they do work differently. The slats on most airplanes slide down over the top. The slats on a 747 actually flip out from underneath the wing. <laughs> Chrissy's like, I don't believe you. <laughs> no, I believe you. I'm just having a hard time figuring out then how you would control. Like, is it just one setting out? Pretty or much. are there degrees? I think I think it's pretty much just one setting, but I have to look. I don't know. Okay. My brain hurts. Any previous 747s captains out there? Or mechanics? Just, uh... Help. Anyways, 
The airplane managed to touch down normally at the 1,000-foot mark on the runway. That's pretty good. Well, he's a good captain. He's very experienced. Nah, really? The captain applied the reverse thrust on the left two engines, and he applied moderate to heavy braking. The airplane managed to stop 7,000 feet later, which is really good. Stop that, on the runway. stellar. Yep. 2.34 a.m., the air traffic controller was informed by the flight crew that they had stopped and were evacuating on the runway. When the sun came up that morning, the damage was much more apparent about what happened. Oh, Jesus Christ. There are pictures on our website. Yep. You can also Google them. So you can see that the outermost portion of the skin ripped even up into the upper floor. Yeah. But it primarily the wall was gone on the first floor. Oh, yeah. No, it's completely gone. Nine passengers perished when their seats fell from the cabin over the ocean. Three cabin crew and two passengers were seriously injured. One flight crew, 12 cabin crew, and 20 passengers were minorly injured. And 305 passengers were not injured at all. So, obviously, most of everybody was okay, apart from probably really traumatized by the airplane decompressing really quickly. And people flying out of the aircraft. That, and the oxygen masks and things like that, which I think in that picture, if you look yeah, in the distance... Yeah, I guess you can kind they of look see deployed. that, yeah. It's hard to tell, though, because, I mean, there's it's so dark much in there, yeah. damage there that we but really But they know. look deployed. They, they probably... Yeah, they look like stuff's hanging from the ceiling of the aircraft. They probably so. did, but the crew did the right thing. They donned their oxygen masks right away, and then they initiated an emergency descent to descent, get down so that people to lower could breathe. altitude. So yep. even if the oxygen masks didn't come down yeah people would still be able to breathe within a short amount of time yeah, yeah. okay that's it this investigation was performed by the ntsb when was the last time we did one of those a while, a while. thanks <laughs> helen month and a half a while yeah and they were able to successfully recover both black boxes which makes sense because they had the airplane the, the, the tail was perfectly <laughs> fine yeah According to the CVR, the thud and bang of the door, assumedly separating, occurred at 2.09 in the morning, which sounds awful. Yeah, it does. It's still dark outside. Yeah. Yes. And it was just a minute later that the FAA notified the Coast Guard that a United 747 with a possible bomb on board had had an explosion and was returning to Honolulu. That was literally a minute later. Jesus. The FAA notified the Coast Guard like that. I so mean, fast. given that they didn't know anything, like, that's not a bad assumption. How did they even know? I mean, did they just see the code and that's how they figured it out? Like, I mean, how did the, the FAA know? The The first officer was pretty quick to let air traffic controllers know that they had a rapid decompression. Oh. They were returning to the airport. And I mean, if assuming the worst case scenario is probably the safest option, that's a worst case scenario. Yeah. The Coast Guard cutter named Cape Corwin was deployed from Maui at 2.48 a.m. to search for debris and the missing passengers. After four shore commands, 13 surface air units, and about 1,000 people helping, the search and rescue operation ceased at noon on February 26th, two days after the accident, without recovery of the bodies. That sucks. But it's mm-hmm. in the, they're in the middle of the Pacific. I mean, there's like they could have gone anywhere. Yep. So, knowing that the recovery of the door would take quite a bit of time, investigators began working with what they had. The rest of the plane? Yep. First, logistically, though not chronologically, are the black boxes. The FDR was normal after liftoff, but the decompression caused a data loss of 2.5 seconds. After that, pitch and roll indications were unreliable. Hmm. Okay. On the CVR, there was a thump at 2.09 and 8 seconds, followed by a comment from one of the crew members. Then there was the loud bang at 2.09 and 9 seconds. Power to the CVR was lost for 21.4 seconds, but it did return to normal after 2.09 and 29 seconds. Now for what everyone obviously knew was the problem, the door. Something that usually gets debunked pretty quickly and was debunked in this situation was that it was not a bomb. There was no explosive residue. Good job. (laughs) Some people try to make it a conspiracy again, but it's not. It's not. There was no explosive residue. That's not the problem. So when I'm talking about the door, rather than using left and right, since that can be kind of confusing depending on which side of the door you're looking at, I will use the terms forward and aft parts of the door. Makes sense to me. Investigators pulled the following parts from the plane and sent them to the materials lab in Washington, D.C. The two pull-in hook pins, one forward and one aft. Two mid-span pins, one forward and one aft. Eight latch pins from the forward cargo door floor. They're mounted to the floor of the cargo hold. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay. And one latch pin from the aft cargo hold for comparison. Great. Cool. 
NTSB scientists determined that the forward pull-in hook was bent downward. Three of the four bolts holding the aft pull-in hook pin had sheared, and the whole thing was bent outward too. Boeing determined that these pull-in hook pins would fail at 3.5 PSI difference between cabin pressure and outside pressure if the latch cams were unlatched. I will explain more later how these latch cams work, but investigators knew from the design of the door and the limited wreckage they had that the only way the door could open is if these latch cams were unlatched. Now for the cargo door itself. In terms of this, investigators invested quite a bit of time and resources to try and recover the cargo door. Navy radar tracked the debris and found a probable splashdown point, and the Navy used oceanic current studies to determine the probable location of the door on the ocean floor. The Navy further assisted and lent their state-of-the-art side-scanning sonar quote-unquote fish named Orion starting on July 22nd of 1990. Why is that significant? The accident occurred on February 24th, 1989. Yeah. That's like a year and a half later. Yeah, that's crazy. I don't understand this. That's a long time later. Now, the Mayday episode provided some reasons for this, but I'm not going to really cover that part of the story because the way it was framed, it was not secondarily verified by an outside source. It came directly from the argumentative party, so I'm just not going to talk about it. The quote-unquote fish named Orion found the debris field and a large object assumed to be the cargo door and marked it with transponders since it was just a sonar fish and was incapable of actually recovering the debris. On September 14th, 1990, almost two months later, the Laney Chewist, I'm assuming that's how that's pronounced, a recovery vessel left Pearl Harbor with the manned deep-sea submersible Sea Cliff with NTSB, FAA, Boeing, and United Airlines personnel all on board. They completed four dives before they realized that the cargo area they identified was just debris, and the large object was a piece of cargo, not the door. Well, that sucks. It does suck. On the fifth dive, they finally located the lower part of the cargo door and recovered it. They also found the fuselage parts from above the cargo door, but heavy seas stopped them from pulling it up. So this is like the giant piece of skin that's missing. Mm. It was ultimately determined that it wasn't worth getting it for whatever reason. The upper part of the door was recovered during the seventh dive on October 1st. The wreckage pieces were treated with an anti-corrosive since they were exposed to salt water once in Pearl Harbor, and they observed that the door locks appeared to be indeed locked, but the latch cams were in a nearly open position. You might recall earlier that the only way the door could open is if those were open. That's concerning. Investigators also noted that there were no signs of quote-unquote progressive fractures, which is just another way of saying they didn't see any fatigue fracture patterns. So that's good. Yeah. This is not the fatigue podcast today. (laughs) Not today. And then the pieces were shipped to Seattle. Makes sense. That's where Boeing is. Yep. Once ready for a thorough examination, investigators found that the two pieces of door fit together pretty well, except for a missing bit of skin, which is kind of to be expected. I mean, it like explosively tore off the plane. Mm -hmm. The upper side of the brake was bent back and a large area of the lower door skin was peeled downward. The pictures in the report are kind of really super crappy, but the best picture from the report is of the door and is on the website. It was determined that the door was actually probably one piece when it separated from the plane and split in two when it struck the upper fuselage and or the water. So let's explain for a second how this door works. Unlike most previous cargo doors that open by swinging inside and then close by becoming a plug in the doorway, this door swings out like the trunk of a car. This then requires a different way to lock the door shut. There are eight latch cams, as I have mentioned, or slots on the lower side of the door, and then the eight latch pins on the floor of the cargo area, which fit in those slots. Then the latch cams rotate, holding the pins in place with the opening of the C of the slot facing up. I don't really understand how that would keep it closed. So, this is on the door, and then this is the pin, so it's closing, and then... Oh, okay. Got it, okay. Got it. The baggage personnel then activate the handle on the outside, which moves the locking sectors over the opening of the C in the latch cam, further locking it in place, and it also deactivates power to the latch cam so they can't rotate back to open. Seven of the latch cams showed contact and scraping damage. Only the number one latch slot seemed undamaged, though the components above that slot showed damage from the lock sector. All eight lock sectors were found in the locked position, 
but had deflected off of the latch cams and had gouge marks because the cams had come into contact with them. So the only way that would happen is if the cams didn't lock and rotate all the way or had become unlocked. Now, we're going to jump back a little bit. Boeing had discovered that the locking sectors, which were made of aluminum, were not strong enough to be a true component of the locking mechanism. If the latch cam somehow rotated, even though power was supposed to be cut to them, they could bend the weak aluminum lock sectors out of the way. Well, that oh. seems dumb. Why didn't they make yeah. that out of something not aluminum? <laughs> uh, we found out multiple times that if it works, they don't fix it. It didn't work. Until it becomes a not working thing, and then they do fix it. Yeah, I was going to say it didn't work. So as such, in 1987, Boeing issued an airworthiness directive to replace them with steel ones. Good. Smart. I approve. The fix itself was pretty cheap, all things considered. Only $2,000 per aircraft. But it took 10 hours to do. Yeah. You probably have to take the door off, and then you have to take the latches off, and then you have to put the latches back on, and then you have to put the door back on. So the whole phrase, time is money, it's kind of hard to say, but I bet the time spent grounding that plane for 10 hours, more than $2,000. They more than likely would wait until whenever the next heavy maintenance would be. A situation like that. It is apt that you say they had to wait. It was not an immediate airworthiness directive. The plane was not grounded if you didn't do this. Right. The airlines were given 18 months to comply. That happened in 1987. You know what happened within 18 months of that? This. 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 So, you remember how I said earlier that there was no way for this door to fail unless the latch cams were open? How could that happen? There are three situations in which the latch cams would have been unlatched and allowed the door to open in flight. Either the door wasn't properly latched and locked before departure, the cams opened mechanically after locking, or they opened electrically after locking. If any of those were the case, the door would have opened when pressurization loads reached a point where the latches wouldn't hold by just friction. Was the door closed correctly? Option 1. Looking at the locking pins mounted to the floor, they had smooth wear marks from where the latch cams normally rotate around the pins, and there was nothing indicating that there was anything out of the ordinary there. That's what's supposed to happen. Now, if you look at the pins from the aft side, think of it as a clock around the surface of the pin. 12 o'clock is up, 6 o'clock is down, 3 o'clock is outboard, 9 o'clock is inboard. There were different wear marks from the smooth wear marks on this section between 6.15 and 7.30 on all eight pins. Ooh. There was actually material from the cams on this area on all eight pins, which is indicative of high stress and rapid movement. So this rough marking and material transfer likely happened during the door separation, but it would have only happened if the cams were unlatched. Further, just verifying that. There was no evidence on the pins that the cams were jammed into them or anything like that, indicating that the door was shoved shut. This is verified because the lock sectors were closed, which can only happen when the door is closed properly. Okay. Once the latch cams failed, whichever way, the pull-in hooks and and pins that I mentioned earlier also failed once the pressure differential exceeded 3.5 PSI. So you remember how there was a thud and then a two-ish second pause and then the bang? Yeah. Investigators believe that the thud was the latches failing and the bottom of the door opening slightly, and then the bang was when the pull-in hooks failed and the door separated. I mean, that would make sense. Yep. Yep. So we know now for a fact that the door was closed properly at one point. So for the second theory, how would the cams have unlocked mechanically? Well, for maintenance reasons, I assume, there is a way to manually operate the cams once the door is locked. There is a back drive, which involves, from what I loosely understand, inserting a crank and cranking about 95 rotations. Which just isn't gonna happen. I'm sorry. Jesus Christ. However, there is a seal over the back drive so you can tell if it's been used or not. That's pretty smart. However, there was damage to the seal when it was found, but investigators determined that was likely from impact and underwater pressure. So, hard to tell just from that, but also... Why would you just stick in a crank and crank it 95 times? And wouldn't someone have noticed? And did they have enough time to do that? Before they took off? During takeoff? During climb? The whole thing seems whack. Yeah, that doesn't seem possible. The NTSB ruled this possibility is unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Agreed. So that leaves us with the cams opening electrically. I mentioned earlier that when the handle outside is used to drive the locking sectors to lock the cams in place, electrical power is also cut to the cams. 
That way, they can't rotate. The only way they could move in flight is if power wasn't actually cut to them. There are several conditions that must be met for the cams to operate after the door is locked. One, either ground power must be attached or the APU must be running. Two, the air ground relay, which is a thing that tells the plane you're on the ground or you're in the air, must register the airplane as on the ground. Three, there must be a signal to the door open position in one of the two door open close switches. So one of the switches has to think that it was told to open. Four, the S2 matcher latch lock switch, the thing that cuts power to the cams when the handle outside is used, must sense not locked. Based on everything I just said, it's easier for this failure to happen on the ground. Right. There's like literally three things that require them to be on the ground. Yep. So you can have either ground power or APU power. Both happen on the ground. The air ground relay definitely says you're on the ground. Now, to get that open signal on one of the switches, any of the following combinations of conditions had to happen. A malfunction of the S2 master latch lock switch and placement by someone of one of the door control switches to the open position. So that thing had to malfunction and someone had to flip a switch Two, a malfunction of the same latch lock switch and certain short circuits okay or condition three multiple short circuits for this to happen in the air the apu would have had to be running the air ground relay would have had to have malfunctioned and read that they were on the ground the number two ground handling power relay would have to malfunction the s2 master latch lock switch and one of the cargo door switches would have had to malfunction or there'd be a short circuit so there's a lot of conditions for this to have happened yeah once the crew shut down the apu there was no way for the latch cams to open at all and, and you... yet it happened after they shut the apu down. well the door separated after they shut down the apu yes correct that means that once they shut down the APU, the door was already open. Yikes. The cam, well, not the door, but the cams were already open. The only thing holding the cams over the pins was friction. Yeah, that's not good at all. That's, uh... Sketch. Sketch 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 McGitch. And the door blew open when the pressure differential exceeded that friction, specifically. But investigators found it impossible to prove what exact series of failures caused the accident since not, A, not everything was recovered, and what was had impact and water damage. They found a short to be unlikely, but not impossible. They think that the most probable thing was that the cams opened before the engine started and they were still connected to ground power. That is the situation that, like, didn't have the most malfunctions? Sure. I guess. Okay. Makes sense, I guess. So that's ultimately what they were like. That's the probable cause. As in, might not be, but that's the best we got. (laughs) Right. Further in the analysis section, the NTSB outlined several opportunities to prevent the accident that were not taken. I'm going to go over two of them. First, the design of the door allowed for the overriding of the lock sectors, either mechanically or electrically. Obviously, since there was a crank installed. Yeah. Which is weird. Yeah, that is weird. They didn't prove during certification that the lock sectors did indeed lock the cams, as evidenced by the fact that an AD had to be issued to change them to steel. Yeah. Yeah. Alternatively, they could have inserted viewing ports to check that the cams were indeed locked properly. Yes. The easy solution of this is to switch them from aluminum. Yes. Well, and that's what ultimately was done, but during design. Yeah, it was just a bad idea. Yeah, I don't know why they used such a soft... Metal if you've learned anything from this podcast, cargo door design, apparently really hard. Apparently. <laughs> apparently this is not something that the airlines find to be an easy job. Now, the second opportunity to prevent this accident is a throwback to episode 76. When DC-10 cargo doors began failing, specifically the Turkish Airlines accident in 1974, this should have called into question assumptions during all cargo door designs, especially for latched and locked verifications. The NTSB found no evidence that the FAA and Boeing reassessed the design or certification. So... Something horrible happened, and no one was like, you know, we should look at that. We should do something about that. No one. Bring it back. Break! Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Okay. 
Now for some findings. This one had about a mid-grade amount of findings. I thought I you were going to say a million. No, no. <laughs> a mid-grade amount of findings. This one's pretty average. Anyways, we're only going to do the pertinent ones. As per usual. As per usual. They found that the airplane had not been maintained in accordance with provisions of AD-88-12-04 that required an inspection of the cargo door locking mechanisms after each time the door was operated manually and restored to electrical operation. However, this circumstance was not determined to be a factor in the accident. Which is why I didn't cover it. Right. Ultimately, this was just another little rabbit hole they went down, but I thought it was interesting because normally it's like, the airplane was properly maintained and stuff, and this time it was like, the airplane was not properly maintained. They found that all but one of the electrical components remaining with the airplane or found with the cargo door that were necessary to have malfunctioned in order to cause an inadvertent electrical opening of the cargo door after dispatch were found to function properly. So they couldn't prove that any of the electrical problems happened. Yeah. Because everything seemed to be working normally. Yeah, but, I mean, with so much damage and circumstances, it's so hard to tell. They found that the forward cargo door lock sectors were found in the locked position, actually in an overlocked position, and jammed against the latch cams. The latch cams were found in the nearly open position. Which was only made possible because they were still aluminum. And right. soft. Yep. Bendable. Malleable. Yes. Ductile. Yes. These are all... Both those things. Technical adjectives. Synonyms. Yes. <laughs> Bendy metal. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's that. <laughs> they found that an S2 switch functioning as found after recovery would permit electrical power to the door during ground operation so that additional failure modes or activation of the door control switch could result in movement of the latching cams. So they found that the switch could just potentially make malfunction? the cameras. Yeah, malfunction caused them. Which was one of the four potential things needed to have the latch cams open yep. after being closed. They found that short circuit paths in the cargo door circuit were identified that could have led to an uncommanded actuation of the latch actuator. This situation occurred most likely before engine start, although limited possibilities for an uncommanded electrical actuation exist after engine start while an airplane is on the ground with the APU running. They found that it was not possible for electrical short circuits to command the cargo door to open at the time of the loss of the door, and it is highly improbable that such an event occurred when the airplane was airborne during the short period while the APU was running. But not impossible. But not impossible. That's kind of what they're getting at. It's like, look, not likely, but we don't have anything else. They found that an uncommanded movement of cargo door latches that occurred on another UAL B747 on June 13, 1991 was attributed to insulation damage and a consequent short between wires in the wiring bundle between the fuselage and the movable door. Because the S2 switch functioned properly on that airplane, movement of the latches would not have occurred after the door was locked. So they still had one of the fail-safes, and it worked. Thank God. Yes. They found that UAL's maintenance trend analysis program was inadequate to detect an adverse trend involving the cargo door on November 4713 uniform. The circumstance was determined not to be a factor in the accident. But they wanted to bring this up because they... They weren't tracking malfunctions over time or anything regarding the door over time. This potentially serious problem. And to further that, they found that the FAA oversight of the United Airlines Maintenance and Inspection Program did not ensure adequate trend analysis and adherence to the provisions of airworthiness directives. This circumstance was determined not to be a factor in the accident. So again, not the problem, but not great. They're supposed to be making sure that maintenance and inspection programs follow ADs properly. They found that the design of the B-747 cargo door locking mechanism did not provide for the intended fail-safe provisions of the locking and indicating system for the door. They found that Boeing's failure analysis, which was the basis upon which the FAA granted an alternative method of compliance with the provisions of 14 CFR 25.783E, was not valid as evidenced by the finding of the Pan Am incident in 1987 and the accident involving Flight 811. So what they mean by this is part of the certification was... In Boeing's failure analysis, they assumed that there was no way the locking sectors would fail, even though they were made of aluminum. Right. This is a bad assumption. It was erroneous to certify the aircraft based on that assumption. Yes. They found that Boeing and the FAA did not take immediate action to require the use of cam position viewports following the Pan Am incident and did not include this requirement in the provisions of the Alert Service Bulletins, or AD88-12-04. So... They could have had a fix, or at least a 
potential mitigation mitigation yes is a better word for that but they chose not to do anything about it they found that there were several opportunities for the manufacturer and the faa to have taken action during the service life of the boeing 747 that might have prevented this accident eventually they just changed the design and the 747-100 went obsolete so well and the cargo doors were just completely redesigned yeah it's all just better now they found that the fact that the crash fire rescue vehicles responding to this accident did not use a common radio frequency led to problems in communication among the responding vehicles does this sound familiar how many times have we talked about this yes exactly british air tours being the most recent of which yeah Why, why is this just not a standard i skip over the next one but kind of hand in hand with that they mentioned that because this airport also has a military presence honolulu like an Air Force presence, they also have military firefighting equipment there. So it's a mix of both. And that's who they're talking about, like the civilian side and the military side. They didn't have a common communication. But the military side also had camouflaged fire trucks. And this was in the dark. So these fire trucks kept being unseen and there was some near misses. Who thought that was a good idea? I don't know. They since repainted these. (laughs) Yeah. When it's on an American military base, does it really need to be camouflaged? Even if it's not, it's firefighting equipment. Yeah. It is emergency vehicle equipment. Exactly. I don't know if they did it just because they thought it was cool. Yeah. They're like, we just want to go around in the night putting out fires with no one being able to see us. Yeah. So they changed that. That that changed. They found that the megaphones were used in flight to communicate with passengers because of the high ambient noise level. However, more megaphones would have afforded better communication in all parts of the cabin. Guess how many there were on a Boeing 747? Three. Two. There were only two megaphones? There were 15 flight attendants. Two megaphones. Yeah, on a double-decker plane. Yeah, it seems slightly not great. And guess what I can tell you? Guess what didn't change? Well, now they just use the PA system. Yeah, the PA systems have become a little more reliable, but even then it's like, mm, maybe you what, if, when the what airplane if it doesn't breaks work? Up, yeah. When the airplane breaks up and things go wrong. Mm, but most of the time we're talking about smaller airplanes these days, so. Yeah, there's not a lot of double-decker planes out there anymore. No. They found that some flight attendants and passengers had difficulties tightening straps of their life preservers around their waists because of the fabric used, the design of the adjustment fittings, and the angle... The straps were pulled. This has obviously quite changed because they used to make these life preservers with literally just with like straps, like fabric straps, and then you had to wrap them through like metal belts or tie them to themselves, which is not efficient, which is why they now just have the little plastic buckle. buckle. Yeah. Because it's so much faster. Well, and I know at least in the United States, it's a one buckle and tighten system. I think in other countries it's different. Ours is simple. Some can be, yes. They've, they've started to standardize the way these things are made for, and provided to the manufacturers and, and the airlines. And make it so, so an idiot could use it. Pretty much. They just try to make it really easy. Which, why wouldn't you do that in the first place? Not quite sure. Right, agreed. They assumed that people were smarter. No, you should always assume people are stupid. Yeah. I feel like in a lot of situations, too, safety mechanisms have been implemented such that the idiot who did not listen to the safety briefing might survive. Yeah, that's pretty much how they have to design it these days. Anyways, finally, they found that the articles that fell to the floor from stowage bins above the L2 and R2 exits and galley service items had to be cleared away from the exits before the emergency evacuation could be initiated. Think about this a little bit. And this, think about the last time you were in an airplane. Do you remember any time when you, like, had stowage bins above an actual door? Not a window exit, a door. Nope. No. Right. This changed. Absolutely. Why were they there? They just thought it would be extra More space. More storage, yeah. Yeah. Dumb. Yep. Turns out that was not a good idea because all that crap fell in front of the door. Dumb. And then they couldn't get out. Yeah, not great. Okay. Well, the probable cause verbatim from the report. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the sudden opening of the Ford lower lobe cargo door in flight and the subsequent explosive decompression. The door opening was attributed to a faulty switch or wiring in the door control system which permitted electrical actuation of the door latches toward the unlatched position after initial door closure and before takeoff. Contributing to the cause of the accident was a deficiency in the design of the cargo door locking mechanisms which 
made them susceptible to deformation, allowing the door to become unlatched after being properly latched and locked. Also contributing to the accident was a lack of timely corrective actions by Boeing and the FAA following a 1987 cargo door opening incident on a Pan Am Boeing 747. I like that they add in that last sentence. It's just like a pew pew. Like this happened and you didn't do anything. Yeah, you could have pew, done pew. something about this. You should have known about this and you didn't. And now look what happened, which is totally fair. Yes. Yes, it is. Now, that probable cause is one of the most loaded probable causes I think we've ever read because they don't actually know. This is their best guess as to the probable cause. As to the probable. Underline, italicize, bold, probable. We've never had a more probable cause. When most of them are like, yeah, this is exactly what happened. We just have to write probable because... No, this is literally, this this probably happened. We just don't know. Okay. There are a bunch of recommendations which they wrote out the old way. I didn't like, but that's okay. I'm going to go through what's important. They recommended to require that the electrical actuation systems for non-plug cargo doors on transport category aircraft provide for the removal of all electrical power from circuits on the door after closure, except for any indicating circuit power necessary to provide positive indication that the door is properly latched and locked, to eliminate the possibility of uncommanded actuator movements caused by wiring short circuits. I liked this recommendation. And it was theoretically in place. Yes. But it wasn't. But it wasn't. Yes, I like this a lot, because this could have been prevented by just not having everything on power all the time. Anything that actually opens the door. They recommend to issue an airworthiness directive to require that the manual drive units and electrical actuators for Boeing 747 cargo doors have torque limiting devices to ensure that the lock sectors, modified per 8088-1204, cannot be overridden during mechanical or electrical operation of the latch cams. So basically having a system which would detect if the lock sectors were being forced open. Yes, yes. Ultimately, this was not necessary because the doors were redesigned. They recommended to issue an airworthiness directive for non-plug cargo doors on all transport category airplanes requiring the installation of positive indicators to ground personnel and flight crews, confirming the actual position of both the latch cams and locks independently, which is definitely actually in place. That's when we've talked about, like, the stripes they can see. Yeah. Most of the time, it's little. It's a little, like, quarter-size hole. Yeah, viewing window. Viewing window with the stripes. Sometimes a little bit bigger than that. But point being, it's like a little round spot with stripes, and it shows you if the door's locked or not. We've discussed mechanical systems for that, like this links to this links to this, which would pull the thing shut, so it would show this color. Mm-hmm. Manually, like mechanically, is... They're an electric equivalent now that technology is what it is? Good question. I have not looked into that. Okay. It might be electrical now, but I know I've seen these on airplanes up close, and I know that this exists, so I don't know whether it's electrical or mechanical at this point. They recommend requiring that fail-safe design considerations for non-plug cargo doors on present and future transport category airplanes account for conceivable human errors in addition to electrical and mechanical malfunctions. So just literally when you design a cargo door, don't let this ever happen again in any way, shape, or form. They recommend requiring in accordance with the requirements of 14 CFR 25.1447 C4 that a portable oxygen bottle be located at the flight attendant stations at exit door 5 right and exit exit door 5 left in the Boeing 747 airplanes. So point being is there just weren't portable oxygen tanks at all the doors. Portable oxygen, yeah. Yes. Which they need so that they can walk around the cabin and tell you to put your mask on. Yeah. Without them passing out from hypoxia. (laughs) Yep. They recommend requiring that no articles be placed in storage compartments that are located over emergency exit doors. Nah, really? That one changed. Yeah. They recommend amending 14 CFR 121.309F to require a readily accessible megaphone at each seat row at which a flight attendant is stationed. Guess what they didn't do? That? Yeah. I would like to re-recommend that on behalf of the <laughs> They recommend issuing an airworthiness directive to require that stronger latches be installed in oversized storage compartments that formerly held life rafts on all Boeing 747 airplanes and also limit the distance that these compartments can be opened. So, I Did didn't find any... rafts pop out of the overhead bins or something? I didn't find any explanation as to why this is. The only thing I can assume is that, yes, a life raft must have fallen from one of the bins, and the bin opened too far, and that's what they determined... That's how they determined that it fell. I read nothing about this. Me neither, but I thought it was really strange, so I threw that one in. Maybe they just found that it was just not great, and they were like, we're just going to put this in here... (laughs) 
right now. <laughs> so maybe you fix it later. Yeah. I guess. And then, and also very important one that they didn't end up having actually use, which was great, but point being. They recommend demonstrating for each make and model of life preserver that it can be donned, adjusted, and tightened within the elapsed time required by TSO-C13D. Direct particular attention to the ease with which straps pass through adjustment fittings when the straps are pulled at all possible angles. So, in other words, now they just use the clip. Yeah, it's been completely clip, redesigned. Clip and pull. Clip that's and pull. That's all you gotta do. That is it. And that's all the recommendations that I have chosen to read, because the rest were mostly just reiterations. So. Ta-da! 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 But they redesigned cargo doors. They redesigned... Life jackets. Life jackets. They took storage bins out from above. Oh. Exit doors. They took them out from stupid places. <laughs> yes. They didn't make them open too far. They redesigned how life rafts are kept in airplanes. Yeah. Important stuff. Very. But one key thing wasn't done, even though it had multiple prompts to do so. Yeah. And that's not great. Nope. Yeah. I mean, we, we find this to be a recurrent thing, right? Every time we talk about it, we're like, well, that was a problem five episodes ago. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, I mean, we jump around in history. We don't go in sequential order. But when you're talking about, like, UA-232 and then American Airlines flight, the, our, our one-year anniversary episode. Oh. Uh, 3833. To Las Vegas too. We'll have Leo on. It'll be a great time. Woo! Thank you so much for listening. This was United Airlines 811. Woo! I'm proud of you. You got it. I only knew that because I did the episode post today. Nice. Thank you so much for listening. As always, again, we ask you to, if you enjoy the show, give us a rating, right? On or subscribe. On... Hopefully a good rating, but yeah. I'm not gonna persuade try to persuade you. Otherwise. I mean, if you've made it to this far in the episode, I hope it's at least a decent rating. Uh, check out the Patreon, if you are so willing. There's cool stuff on there that you can't get anywhere else. You can also check out the merch site and check out all the stuff on there. And it's cool stuff. Cool stuff. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. We'll catch all you guys next week. Keep your airspeed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.